All right, 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verses 29 to 34. It's a small section, so maybe we'll get done early. (laughs) He said. But uh, here Paul writes, verse 29, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So there you have it. Um, Verses 29 to 34, just a recap of where we were last week. Last week we looked at verses 20 through 28, in which Paul talks, he's continuing uh, his argument on the resurrection, which really begins in verse 12. This is a, uh, from 12 to 34 really is one long argument. But in last week's, uh, well, I guess it wasn't, well, it was last week, right? Yeah, it was last week. Got Mission Fest mixed up in there somewhere. Uh, Last week, when we looked at verses 20 through 28, This is Paul's response to what he said in verses 12 through 19, where Paul uh, takes the premise that the Corinthians, or at least some there had, that there was no resurrection of the dead, and he teases out the implications of that view. And then in verses 20 through 28, Paul then just declares boldly that there is a resurrection from the dead. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and we should all shout amen to that. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Amen, right? (laughs) You forgot, haven't I trained you well enough? I'll give you one more try at that. But Christ is now risen from the dead. There you go. All right. We could be Baptists for five seconds, okay? And so he's saying, look, that is the truth. And that is the truth that I preached to you back in verses 1 through 11. I declared that to you. I've given you the evidence. This is of first importance that Christ is raised from the dead. It is central to, our, to the gospel proclamation. It is what you believed in Corinth. He says that in verse 11. You believed this. This is what we preached to you. This is what you believed. So how can you say then that Christ is not risen from the dead? Because that is the implication of their argument. If, Christ, if there is no resurrection from the dead, that's what he says in verses 12-19, through 19, then Christ is not raised from the dead. But he's like, look, Christ is raised from the dead, therefore there is a resurrection from the dead. That's his point in verses 20 through 28. And then he makes that connection by showing how uh, in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Christ is considered the second Adam, the last Adam, however you want to refer to it. And there are two covenant heads, if you will. You have Adam who is the covenant head of those who are born naturally into this world. He was the one whom God made a covenant in the garden that if you were to obey, you would get um, the glorious um, end times life that I offer to you. Adam failed, and he plunged the entire world into sin at that point. So everyone who descends from Adam is descended in his image, as Genesis 5 says, 
in His image, and we are descended in our broken, fallen, sinful state. Christ comes as the head of a new covenant, a better covenant, which we'll look at when eventually we get to Hebrews. At some point I intend to preach through that or teach through that. Christ is the head of a new covenant, a better covenant, and those who are united to Christ will live. So if you're united to Adam, you die. How are you united to Adam? You were born into this world. But if you're united to Christ, you will live. How are you united to Christ? You're born again. You're born by the Spirit. But we talk about here about Christ being the first fruits. That's Paul's point there. There, there is a, a time lapse, if you will, between Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. He is the, he is the sample. He is the preview of coming attractions. He is the first one to taste this eschatological life. And then that will come to us at the end when Christ returns. So there's an order. Christ first then those who sleep at his return, and then the end comes. That's Paul's argument in these verses. So now as we get to our passage this morning, verses 29 to 34, Paul now is really kind of concluding this argument that he began in verse 12, where he's going to say, look, if there is no resurrection, essentially this, this section boils down to this. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then why are you doing certain things? That's kind of what it, you know, if I were to summarize it in one sentence, that would be it. It's like, if there is no resurrection from the dead, why are you doing some of these things that you're doing in the church? Why are we doing these things in the Christian life if there's no resurrection from the dead? If you remember what we saw a couple of weeks back in verse 17, where Paul there says, this is where he's taking that, you know, he's taking their argument head on. He says, look, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And he says, we were, you know, verse 19, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most pitiable. If there's no resurrection from the dead, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is vain, it's empty, it's futile, it's useless, it's meaningless, and then we are still stuck in our sins. So now Paul's going to attack sort of like an inconsistency in their practice. Before he attacks an inconsistency in their logic, right? You cannot separate the resurrection of believers from the resurrection of Christ. Now he's going to attack an inconsistency in their practice. Look, some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead. Then why are you doing certain things that we'll look at when we look at these verses? So just as a theme statement, if you will, to kind of tie this all together this morning is simply this. If there's no resurrection of the dead, life is vain and meaningless. I mean, that's kind of what it <laughs> boils down to. If there's no resurrection from the dead, life is vain and meaningless. So we've got three points. The first point will probably be the longest one <laughs> because it's the most debated one. Um, but in verse 29, Paul's going to say, look, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then why be baptized for the dead? And then in verses 30 and 32, if there's no resurrection from the dead, why do we stand in jeopardy all the time? And then in verses 33, 34, he's going to exhort them, do not be deceived. So first, well, maybe I'll just pause here for a second, see if there's any questions from lessons past or any questions. If you're going to ask me what the baptism of the dead is, you can wait because I'll talk about that. <laughs> and I'll probably end up telling you I don't know exactly what it means, so... <laughs> But uh, just any, any questions or comments from previous lessons? Yeah. 
Okay, let's continue on. So again, Paul in verses 29 to 34, as I said a moment ago, is concluding his argument. Because in verses 35 and following, then he's going to tackle a kind of another um, discussion point centering around the resurrection. And that is with what kind of bodies are we raised. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. But today, like I said, he's concluding the argument that he began in verse 12, which is, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? So again, just as a brief review, there were some in Corinth, not all, some who did not believe and who argued there was no resurrection from the dead. And if you remember from that lesson, basically, it could be broken down into two basic groups. You might have had some who come out of a kind of a Jewish background of the Sadducees who believe there is no resurrection from the dead, or it, more than likely it's a pagan um, philosophical notion that rejected physical resurrection because of sort of a dualistic, almost kind of a Gnostic view of the body as being, you know, the material body being evil. So the thing is you want to be free of the physical body. You don't want to be resurrected in another body. That's what they were saying. And Paul here, as I said, is going to say, well, if, if you do not believe in a resurrection from the dead, why then are you doing certain things? In this case, why are you baptizing people from the dead or people for the dead? So as I said in verses 12 through 19, Paul... Um, tax their, their logic, now he's going to attack their conduct. Their conduct doesn't match what some of them say that they believe in. Because if the Corinthians believe the dead do not rise, why then do they engage in this activity called the being baptized for the dead? Now this is a very enigmatic phrase. Okay, I mean, the problem is, is that Paul doesn't explain what it is. Right? He just says it. Why are you being baptized for the dead? And we were like, Paul, can you explain that? I mean, it would have been helpful. Maybe put a little footnote in your letter, a little postscript. By the way, baptism of the dead means this, 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 and this. So, as you can imagine, there are probably as many ex- explanations as to what this means as there are people explaining it. I saw one commentary said that there are over 200 explanations of this phrase. And I kind of believe it because... No one really knows what it means. Now on the surface, if you just read the words and kind of try to understand the words as they're read, what what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? It sounds like you've got some people who are being baptized for dead people. Okay, sort of a vicarious baptism, if you will. In other words, oh... Joe, he died before he can be baptized. I will be baptized in his place. I will be baptized for him, and then it will kind of sort of apply to him. I'm doing it for him, so it would be like as if he were baptized. That seems to be the most common explanation for it. If that's the case, that's not a practice we should engage in, because you cannot be baptized for someone else. You cannot believe for someone else. You cannot... Do things for transferring doesn't work horizontally. Okay, we can have the benefits of Christ imputed to us by faith, but that's more of a vertical thing. You cannot transfer. I cannot transfer my obedience or my activities 
to you and vice versa. Now this appears, according to some documentation, to have been a practice in the early church, that you did have this sort of vicarious baptism for the dead. In fact, in a council, a church council in 397 AD, if you want to know the name, it's the Council of Carthage. Carthage is a city in North Africa. Apparently, this practice was forbidden. It was, it was said, you cannot do this. This is a heretical practice. Now, in a way, it kind of makes sense if you understand a little bit about how Roman Catholic theology looks at baptism. To them, baptism is a way of infusing grace into the person being baptized. So when you baptize a person, whether they be an adult or a child, grace is sort of poured into them. So they're in a state of grace. And then because they sin, they fall out of a state of grace, which is why you have to engage in the sacrament of penance to restore yourself to that state of grace. So in a sense, you could see, well, if I'm being baptized for the dead, then maybe I'm kind of, I can give them that grace. And then if they're in purgatory, if they're in hell, they can maybe bounce up to heaven or something like that. So the church apparently said, no, don't do this anymore. Uh, it also appears to be a practice of uh, the Mormons. The Church of the Latter-day Saints seem to kind of practice something like this as well. It's interesting because if you consider, you know, since we're a week removed from Reformation Day, the, you know, the Reformation was kind of sparked because of the sale of indulgences. And what's an indulgence? Well, you're, you're paying money to the church, in a sense, to get a piece of paper that says because of your good work of giving to the work of the church, the church then will dig into the treasury of merits and give some merit to a person who is dead whose name is on that piece of paper. That's kind of what the indulgences were. You would do certain works of penance or certain acts of, of, of you know, good works, and then that can be transferred because the church can just dig into the treasury of merits and say, okay, uh, dead Uncle Joe now can be released from purgatory into the gates of heaven. You know, of course, and one of the things Martin Luther says, well, if, hey, if the Pope has the keys to the treasury of merit, why doesn't he just empty it out and release everyone from purgatory if he has indeed this power. So you can almost see this kind of baptism for the dead kind of applying or you know, this, this mentality of doing something for dead people as, you know, from the indulgence practices. Now I'm not going to go through all apparent 200 understandings of this verse. I just have a few here that I thought made the most sense. So the first one, that's just the surface reading of the text. All right, sort of this vicarious baptism. Another way of understanding it, of uh, being baptized for the dead, is that that phrase, for the dead, refers to us. We are, in a sense, the walking dead, if you think about it, right? We are, we are spiritually dead. We are born dead in our sins and trespasses. So when we, when we are being baptized, we are then the dead who are raised up out of the water. Maybe. Sure, okay, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, as good, that's better than vicarious baptism, right? I mean, vicarious baptism, again, was something that was forbidden by the church over 1,800 years ago. Others say that this refers to people who were martyred shortly after baptism. So you had a bunch of people who came to faith, they were baptized, they go out, and then they're martyred, and now someone else comes in, and they are baptized for the dead. 
sort of they replace the ranks of the dead, okay? So you've got a bunch of baptized people who are dead, they're martyred. You've got a bunch of new recruits come in. They're baptized, and they sort of fill the ranks, if you will, of those who are dead. Others say that perhaps this refers to people who were drawn to Christ and to be baptized in, uh, into the faith because of the faithful influence and witness of those who are dead. So they're being, in a sense, baptized because of what this dead person did. I'm influenced. I've been, you know, this person was such a great witness in their life, and I'm going to join the church, and I'm going to be baptized because of what this person did. I don't know which one to believe. You know, I mean, there's, there's many others. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us what it is. That's the problem. <laughs> Paul just say, states it as a matter of fact. And then I just fall back on my old sort of way of understanding the Bible. As if the Bible is silent, then we probably shouldn't speak where the Bible doesn't. Okay? I mean, it's, it's okay to speculate, but I cannot tell you to say, okay, this is exactly what it means. This is exactly what it means. So I think some of those other explanations have some merit. Um, but again, I cannot, I mean, the surface reading sounds like the vicarious baptism, which you shouldn't do. There's even a question as to whether or not Paul approves of the practice. He doesn't say it. He just, basically what Paul is saying, look, you're doing this thing. Why are you doing it if you don't feel the dead are raised, or the, the, the people are raised from the dead? Okay? That's the point of his argument. It doesn't say whether Paul even approves of it. He's just stating it matter-of-factly. The, the, the practice, whatever it means, is occurring. And, and Paul's point is, why do you do that if you don't believe the dead are raised? Right? If you do not believe there's a resurrection from the dead, why do you do this? It doesn't make sense. And I think that's the, the thrust we really need to, to get across here. Paul's argument in this section is not really to tell us what baptism of the dead for the dead is as much as it is to say, hey, why do you do it if you do not believe the dead are raised? Why do you do certain things if you believe the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection from the dead? In other words, whatever is meant by baptism for the dead, Paul's argument is saying your, your, your practice then is pointless because you're doing something that has no meaning if there is no resurrection from the dead. Why do you do these things? I don't know if that makes sense or not. <laughs> I'm trying to get at the heart of Paul's argument as opposed to trying to get stuck in the weeds of some of the details. Because if you start focusing on too closely on certain trees, you're going to miss the forest, right? So secondly... Paul then continues in verses 30 to 32. Why do we stand in jeopardy? So his next question that he asks is, why does he, why do other apostles, other disciples, other evangelists stand in jeopardy? Verses 30 to 32. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which you had, and sorry, in I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That phrase there, stand in jeopardy, is one word in the Greek, to be in danger, to be in peril. 
And he says every hour. Now, in a sense, that sounds like hyperbole, right? Like literally, you know, at the, at the chime of every hour, Paul stands in jeopardy. But it's, it's, it is hyperbole, but what he is trying to, to get across is the fact that, look, as a minister of the gospel, Paul, as an evangelist, as a church planter, as one who is the, the apostle to the Gentiles, he wasn't just in danger every so often. He wasn't just in danger every now and then. He was in constant danger and peril. In constant danger and peril. Every hour. I'm going to look at a couple of passages here. Romans chapter 8. Verses 36, well, you know, you know this, uh, this section. This is the end of Romans 8, which is a, a great uh, passage of comfort to the Christian. But in Romans 8, verse 36 and following, Paul there writes, As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now there he is quoting from Psalm 44. But he is saying, look, my life as an apostle of Jesus Christ, my life as a minister of the word, as a church planter, as an apostle to the Gentiles, is in a sense as a sheep being led to the slaughter. I am in danger constantly. Everywhere I go, you know, just read through the book of Acts, how many times Paul was, was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, all these things. Paul was in constant danger. He felt as if he was being killed all the day long as a sheep being led to the slaughter. You can look at a little bit in, in 2 Corinthians. That's kind of like Paul really bearing his soul there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is also a great passage of comfort. But here he is talking to the Corinthian church. It, it really, in 2 Corinthians, what Paul is doing is he's defending his, his ministry against so-called super-apostles, people that, you know, uh, sort of like superstar people that came into the church and were drawing people away from Paul. And Paul's writing and he's bearing his heart, and he says in chapter 4, verse 7, but we, that is Paul and his compatriots, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, the treasure of the gospel, and Paul and his, and us, where the earthen vessels or the jars of clay. There's a band called Jars of Clay, if you remember them from like the, I don't know, about 20 some odd years ago, give or take. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, Paul is, in a sense, boasting. It's like, look, I'm the, the jar of clay, but I, inside this, this clay vessel is is an immeasurable treasure. And, it, and, and it's, 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 it shines forth so that the glory and power may be of God and not of us. The fact that the church was growing and that Paul's ministry was thriving was not because of Paul. Paul is the clay pot. It's because of the treasure of the gospel is inside and that the power and glory may be given to God. But he goes on in verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, we are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. So Paul's like, <laughs> all these things that are happening to us, we are, we are hard-pressed, we, we are perplexed, we are persecuted, we are caring about in our bodies the, the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, yet we are not crushed, we are not in despair, we are not forsaken, we are not destroyed. And the, and the glorious gospel goes forth. One more passage also from 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 11. 
but it underscores the fact that Paul faced peril often, great peril for his labors in the gospel, and that he quite literally faced death every day. If he was not facing the, 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 the prospects of being killed, in a sense he dies to himself, right? In order to do what Paul is doing, he has to die to himself in order to serve Christ, in order to serve the gospel. And his point is quite simple in verse 32. Why do I put myself in peril daily for preaching the gospel about a resurrection if the dead do not rise? If there is no resurrection from the dead, why am I putting myself through such misery? Why have I taken the 39 lashes five times? Why have I been stoned and and shipwrecked and so on and so forth? Why, if the dead do not rise? What is my advantage? Right? In, in fact, the wild beasts at Ephesus, uh, commentators say that's, that's a bit of a hyperbole because we don't have a record of him being thrown to the beasts in Ephesus. He's probably referring to how he was treated in Ephesus by the, the crowds. If you remember in Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus and, and he sort of, uh, in a way, breaks into the... <laughs> into the, the, the idol-selling uh, business of some, and, and they didn't take that too kindly because you know, they, they made their money off these little idols of, of the god Artemis, and, and Paul was preaching the gospel, so it tore into their business. In fact, he even shut the mouth of a small girl who was prophesying, and he shut, you know, they were, she was giving them much business, so there was a riot in Ephesus. And those are the wild beasts that people refer to, but... Paul's point is this, why do I do this? What advantage do I have? What, what advantage is it to me if I face these perils daily, if I die daily, if the dead do not rise? That's his point. Um, maybe some more passages here. 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul there says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that would be Ephesus, where uh, Asia Minor, the country of Turkey, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. See, Paul's hope for facing these troubles is what? God who raises the dead, right? That was why he did this. That was why he did this, because he knew God would raise the dead, and so he labors. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of, the faith hall of fame, if you will, um, how the writer of Hebrews talks about all these people who, who stepped out in faith, um, Despite the circumstances. And he starts, you know, and then when he, you know, after going through Abraham and Moses and others, and then he just like, okay, what should I say? Verse 32, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. So he's like, I could go on. <laughs> I've talked, I've talked at length about Abraham and Moses and others. I could tell you about Gideon, about his faith, about Barak, his faith. About Now you're thinking, oh, Barak, wait, what did he do? Right? What about Samson was awful, wasn't he? 
you know, Jephthah, we don't know. I mean, did Jephthah sort of actually sacrifice his daughter? We don't know these things, but they did act out in faith in other ways. Verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's David, right? Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Not like from space. Um, women received their dead, raised to life again. That would be Elisha and Elijah. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Paul there, it's just, it's like, look, all of the Old Testament heroes that you, that you know and love, they went out in faith and they too faced very severe persecutions. Why do that if the dead do not rise? We might as well be as what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes uh, 2, verse 24 where Paul here, you know, kind of, in almost sense, feels like he's quoting from it. There, you know, when the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is talking about the vanity of life, he says, nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink, and that his soul should also enjoy good in his labor. In other words, if there's all there is under the sun is just this life, as Paul says here, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection from the dead, we might as well have a party. We might as well, as I said some weeks back, close the doors to this church, sleep in on Sunday mornings, have a party. We might as well just party it up Saturday night because if there's no resurrection from the dead, why are we doing this? Life itself becomes an exercise in futility, and we might as well live it up. Put it this way, let me ask you this question. If this life were all there was worth living, would you still be a Christian? Considering all the negative things that, become, that come with Christianity, would you be a Christian if this life was all there is? I mean, what's Paul's answer? He's like, no. Because there's no hope in this life. The hope comes afterwards. What we're doing is we're, in a sense, following the path Christ walked, right? Christ walked a life of suffering. He walked a life that, that led to the cross, and he had to go to the cross and die, and then, then he got his reward. Then he was resurrected and exalted. And that's the path we follow. That is the path we follow, the cruciform life, if you will, where we are to carry our crosses as well. You know, we would be crazy to put our lives on the line or for the sake of others if there was no hope of a resurrection. That's, that's Paul's point here. Again, if there's no resurrection from the dead, why do you do certain things? Why do I put myself in peril? And then finally he closes in verses 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So in conclusion, Paul's like, look, do not be deceived. That word there, deceived, that's an interesting word. In Greek, it's the word planao, and it's the word that we use for planets, okay? 
to the, to the ancient mind, the planets, when you look up at the sky, well, they move, right? You know, well, I mean, not, you don't actually see them moving, but you can see them moving over the course of, of days if you are a stargazer. <clears throat> so in their minds, the planets were called the wanderers, right? They wandered in the sky and all that stuff. So, so to wander, to go astray, that's, it's used then to, to talk about being deceived because when you're deceived, you kind of wander off the path of truth and into falsehood and all kinds of lies. So do not be led astray. Do not be like a wandering planet. Do not let those, in a sense, what he's saying there, do not let those in your church who deny the resurrection lead you astray. That's why he says there, evil company corrupts good habits. That's actually a quote from a Greek poet called Menander. And he, so, you know, now it doesn't mean that that's inspired. It wasn't, didn't mean that the Greek poet was inspired. It just means that Paul was inspired in his usage of the phrase in this uh, point here. Now, we would say something like what? You know, a rotten apple can spoil the whole bunch, right? You know, that's the idea. Don't, don't let someone in your church or in your group spread lies because those lies will infect the rest. Evil company corrupts good habits. Do not be led astray. I mean, you think about it. You know, what does Psalm 1 tell you, right? The, the godly, righteous man is the one who, who's planted like a tree by the waters, but the, the wicked, they're like the tumbleweed that are blown around. And, 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 then, and then the psalmist says, do not, do not keep your company with them. Do not... Do not Mix with wicked people because their evil morals will corrupt your good habits. So instead of being deceived by evil, evil company, Paul then commands the Corinthians to awake. And that word there means to sober up. All right? Wake up. <laughs> you know, whatever you do, you're, you're, you're letting these evil people corrupt you. You need to wake up to righteousness. Don't listen to those who teach error and deceive you. Come to your senses about the resurrection. Do not sin. In other words, stop then propagating these false notions of the resurrection. So wake up. I like what Proverbs 13.20, and there's many other Proverbs you can look at, but Proverbs 13.20 is kind of good in this. Um, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. You know, oftentimes when you're raising your kids, right, you want them to have good friends. Why? Because they kind of build up on one another, right? If your kids are hanging out with the, with the bad crowd, what happens to your good kids? <laughs> right? Have you ever seen one good kid influence five bad kids to be good? No, not really. <laughs> have you ever seen five bad kids influence one good kid to be bad? Yes. <laughs> Right, good company corrupts bad. Uh, good or evil company corrupts good habits. Walk if you, if you walk with. There's even in even in the in the secular world, right? They they tell you it's like if you want to be successful, what? Hang out with successful people. Find out what they're doing. Find out what makes them successful. Emulate it. Okay, you. It's the same thing. It's just it's just basic wisdom, right? If you want to be wise, hang out with wise people, not wise guys. Okay, those are the bad guys on TV, right? The wise guys, right? You know, the guys with the crooked noses. No, 
wise people hang out with wise. If you hang out with wise, if you walk with the wise, you will be wise. But if you walk with the fools, you will be foolish. And then there's other places where Paul tells people to wake up. You need to wake up sometimes. Romans 13, 11. And do this, that is loving one another, because that's the context there in Romans 13. Do this knowing that the time uh, that is, na- it, sorry, knowing the time, that it is now high time to awake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In other words, the end is coming, right? When is the end going to come? I don't know, but it's a day closer than it was yesterday. So wake up. <laughs> That's what Paul there means. Wake up. So here he's saying in 1 Corinthians 15, look, you've got people in your church that are teaching a false teaching about the resurrection. You need to wake up to righteousness. Don't let them propagate this error. That's why he says, look, for some do not have the knowledge of God. Some in the church, why? These are the ones who are saying that Christ has not been raised. And he says, I speak this to your shame, to the Corinthians' shame. They are tolerating this. We've seen this all throughout the letter to, the Cor- uh, to Corinth, right? They are tolerating bad behavior. They are tolerating all kinds of sin. And the Corinthian leadership should be rooting this out. It should be, they should be bringing rebu- rebuke and correction to the church here. So Paul says, look, you wake up to righteousness, do not sin, and, and, and let's talk the truth about the resurrection. So as we bring this to a close this morning, just basically the wrap-up for this would be the, uh, simply this. If death ends everything for us, then all that matters is the moment. If, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then this life is all we have. Right? And that puts a lot of stress then to try to live your best life now, as some books would tell you to, to do. Right? You're, but we know that the Christian truth is not your best life now. Your best life is yet to come. So our belief in the resurrection will affect how we live in the here and now. Right? I mean, we see that in Paul. Paul believed in the resurrection. How did that affect his life? Well, it motivated him to go out and preach the gospel, knowing that it didn't matter what happened to him, because what his goal was was to make sure as many people as possible heard the gospel, because that is what saves. So he, he risked his life. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to, everyone has to now go out and risk their lives for the gospel. But the point is, if you believe the resurrection, it's going to shape how you live in the here and now. Because that's how Paul will finish this chapter. Therefore, after he talks about the resurrection. Therefore, we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because we know that we will have a resurrection to look forward to. So just some gospel encouragement before we end here. Then, Don't define yourself by the emptiness of this life. Don't let this world sort of dictate how you should think and act. Right? Rather, cherish the promise of sharing in the glory of Christ. He is resurrected and we too will be resurrected. He is the first fruits and we will follow. And the resurrection, as we learn, is a source of power to endure hardship and is also a source of power to struggle against sin. So next week, the 13th, Lord willing, we will look at verses 35 to 49. That's, that's 14 verses. We only looked at five today.
How many people think I'll finish 14 verses next week? <laughs>